Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. The difficulty with being a self-described liberal is that the word has come to mean many different things to different people. To give just a few examples, in the United States, a liberal is generally considered to be on the left, both socially and economically, in opposition to the conservatives on the right. Whereas here in France, someone referred to as liberal is understood to subscribe to the harshest form of right-wing laissez-faire economics. As for the UK, the word has long been tied to the political parties that have borne the name, and public esteem for those who call themselves liberals has risen or fallen on the tides of those parties' fortunes. Why then, with so many seemingly more defined, modern and sexier political ideologies kicking around, <laughs> would anybody be interested in how to be a liberal? Perhaps because, according to Ian Dunt, liberalism properly understood is, quote, the single most radical political program in the history of humankind. A bold claim, but one for which Dunt makes a compelling case in this meticulously researched, engaging and almost criminally readable book. <laughs> How to be a liberal is at once a history of liberalism, taking readers back to the historical struggles and philosophical shifts that contributed to its development, a critique of the moments in this history that the movement has faltered, and a spirited defence of its continued relevance to contemporary political debate. It's one of the most enlightening political reads of the last 12 months, and I'm delighted to say Ian Dunn joins me to discuss it today. Ian, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to begin with just talking about the the conception of the book, because I'm, I'm going to confess that when I first saw the title, the sort of how to be a liberal, my first thought was to kind of associate it with uh, a lot of the kind of how to books <laughs> that are out there. And, and I say this with the greatest respect to the writers who have written them, but these often combine sort of anecdotal kind of memoir, just sort of like how I became the person I became. And maybe you'll get some sort of you know, political or social or sort of moral lesson from it. But this is basically, you know, my story. And that's not at all what this book is. So this book, as I said in the introduction, it's both a history of liberalism, but also a defense of liberalism. So could you just talk a little bit about how you conceived the book and why you decided it was important that you write it? So the thing to me was that these guys all seem to do the same thing. Right. Like you look at Orban in Hungary or you look at Trump in the US or or sort of Johnson in the UK or Bolsonaro, you know, across the world. They're all really different people, the, the sort of nationalist authoritarians, the right wing populists. They're different. And then it takes place in a very unique kind of cultural context. They target different groups. They have different sort of enemies. However, they pretty much all do the same thing. 
you know, they attack the separation of powers. They mm -hmm. isolate an outsider, typically a kind of immigrant. I mean, the, the exact immigrant changes from country to country, whether it's sort of Central Americans, you know, for Trump or it's Polish people, you know, in the UK. Um, and they all seem to attack the notion of truth, of verifiable mm -hmm. empirical reality. And so once that happens, if you're seeing across the world the same kind of attack, you think, well, what is it? Like, why is it these things that they attack? When you start looking at the things that they attack, they attack the core notions of liberalism over and mm -hmm. over. Separation of power, the existence of objective truth, the adoption of reason, the idea of the individual over the group identity. You go on and on. Um, and so once you get there, you sort of think, okay, well, where did these ideas come from? And mm -hmm. which is kind of an annoying reverse engineering process, because very quickly you think, oh, my God, I have to start writing about stuff that happened 400 years ago. <laughs> really, you do. I mean, once you follow that path backwards, where did these ideas come from? I mean, to me, you start with Descartes. I mean, some people would probably go to Kant, I think. Um, but you're going to start in the Enlightenment, essentially, mm -hmm. and find yourself here. So it's sort of the structure came by virtue of just trying to explain what's happening now. And that's really the same process that I have for all of my journalism, for anything that I do, whether it's Brexit or, you know, a fuel price crisis here. It's OK, so here's the situation. So how did the situation happen? It's just that in this mm -hmm. case, instead of leading me to sort of customs borders and, you know, fuel price fluctuations, it led me back to Descartes. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really important point in the book is that it, it's Descartes with whom you begin. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you say, like, most people don't consider Descartes a liberal. You say he wasn't even writing about politics. And yet it was in his kind of um, philosophical revolution, I guess, with the cogito that you sort of found... Um, liberalism in a sense but you said a moment ago that some people might say it um it started with kant and maybe some people might say you know maybe it started with the kind of the the foundations of western philosophy in greece with the idea of kind of rationalism and or, or you know also mm -hmm. the ra rational argument and so when you were kind of constructing this do you think of it as sort of the history of liberalism or is it sort of your history of liberalism is it kind of like was there something very important for you about the thing that Descartes did with the cogito that would then, I guess, allow you to potentially mount to the defense of liberalism that uh, the book then goes on to do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is very much my history of liberalism. I mean, and, and you can't, I mean, there are some attempts, there's a Fawcett book, um, uh, sort of scans your way through liberalism, looking at the politics as well as the philosophy. And it's, it's very, very good. It, it suffers the defects of doing that, which is that it's just such a huge body of thought. And mm -hmm. it's so kind of bursting with independent minds, pulling it in different directions, that it becomes really quite sort of thin on the ground, quite smudged around. It doesn't really have a very pinpoint accuracy to it. My, I mean, I call myself a liberal extremist. And when I say that, one of the reasons that I call myself that is not just because I think I'm willing to follow the consequences of liberalism to their conclusion, to what I think are very radical conclusions about the kind of law you would have in a country. But also because I'm genuinely committed to the idea that if you think the freedom of the individual is the primary unit of analysis, the primary moral aim of politics, you will be able to answer almost any question. There are some mm -hmm. you can't. Animal rights, for instance, doesn't really fit into it. And there's a few administrative issues. But the overwhelming majority of political questions can be answered by virtue of thinking of the freedom of the individual. That's, the, that's what I think is extreme about my application, about my commitment to it. And that's the kind of liberalism that I think gets born with Descartes. 
I'm going to co- constantly use English pronunciations, even though I Go know exactly where this podcast <laughs> is based. And I've been attacked on, I've noticed someone left a comment underneath on the audible version of this saying, well, his French <laughs> pronunciation is terrible. And I was like, I know, man, I know. So I have to commit to the English pronunciation. Um, and that's because, I mean, Descartes does lots of things. He's definitely not trying to find the individual. He's certainly not trying to find found liberalism. He was, a, I mean, he's a bit of an asshole, really, Descartes. The more you read of his own letters and what he wrote, he's, he's not an easy man to like at all. Um, but he did something by accident, I think, while mm-hmm. trying to achieve something else. And not even philosophically something else. Really, what he was trying to achieve was just to cover his ass against mm-hmm. theologians so he could go off and write about what he really wanted to write about. But by accident, when he writes Cogito Ergo Sum, I think, therefore I am, he has basically shattered all kinds of existential assurance, you know, whether it's about your own senses, your own faculties, whether it's about the church, the state. And what he finds in the end is the individual. It's Mm -hmm. I think, therefore I am. That's the only true thing in the universe for him. Now, later on, he obviously tries to kind of get the scaffolding back up and, and present God as something real. I mean, none of those arguments are very mm-hmm. strong. I think they're some of the weakest arguments I've certainly read of his. He, by accident, founds the individual. And what's amazing is, at the exact moment that he's doing that, in England, you'll see, you're already starting to see the English Civil War and the kind of sure. political pressing of, of that. It's all happening at the same time. But I think the origin, the birth, is with him. But that's one thing I was going to ask, because um, obviously you have people like um, Richard Overton, for example. Um, And I suppose another history of liberalism could have kind of rested almost rested within the sort of the political movements of sort of like the, the levelers and the sort of the outlining of ideas of human rights and things like that. But it seemed uh, important in this book to, to have almost the kind of the, the philosophical underpinning, this kind of detachment from sort of explicit political processes and political campaigning to sort of to underpin liberalism. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting point. Ideas are, I I ended up dwelling on this a lot when it came to Rousseau later on, because, you know, I spoke to a lot of people who were very sympathetic towards Rousseau. And I am basically blaming Rousseau for some some really terrible (laughs) stuff, you know, including Nazism and communism and popular, all of that stuff. And then I would look, this is not what he was trying to do. And it's absolutely correct. That is absolutely not what he was trying to do. He he didn't want a single person, you know, to be hurt in the name of all of that. But ideas do form this background environment in which political action takes place, even Mm -hmm. in cultures. Like, I mean, you know, the, the English political culture is, has, prides itself alarmingly on its hatred for abstraction, its Mm -hmm. hatred for sort of theory. And yet, nevertheless, you you see it all the time. Like it's constantly Mm -hmm. coming out. You know, you're constantly seeing as a reflection of theories, of of the ideas of the philosophy behind it. And I think, you know, I go mad. Once I start spending all my time doing philosophy, it drives me mad. I Mm -hmm. I actually can't stand it. I find it a very unpleasant intellectual experience. But, (laughs) But you need to have that in the background. It needs to be part of it, along with the economics, along with the politics, along with the history, to try and understand what is happening to us both now and in the period in which this stuff took place. Yeah. And I mean, you put me in mind of um, something uh, Eric Fromm wrote about the sort of the, I think he was talking about the impact that the discovery of the Americas by the Europeans Mm -hmm. um, had on the kind of the European consciousness, you know, because it gave the implication that the earth was round rather than flat. And then, you know, sort of, Mm -hmm. and that leads on to the, the Renaissance and then the Copernican Revolution and then the Enlightenment. Oh, and so then the idea that these 
you know, you might have these sort of different ideas, for example, between Descartes and Overton, but sort of happening as part of sort of a historical movement seems quite, um, quite feasible in a sense. You always, I mean, there's this recurring theme in history, isn't there, of similar ideas popping up at the same time. I mean, evolution yeah. is the classic example course, people always yeah. sort of bring up. Um, and and you get people trying to, I mean, some of the, you get some of the most wacky interpretations of this. I mean, Alan Moore sort of says it's because there's this ideascape that exists outside of objective reality. And we just sort of, we we form a region within it, you know. And then mm. you get sort of, I mean, ultimately what, what I think is happening is that people are starting to think in, in broad trends about certain areas and therefore they're more likely to come up with similar ideas or ideas that bounce off each other at similar times. Mm -hmm. The main thing when I was writing this was not to give the idea of a baton. You know, that was the yeah. crucial thing. It wasn't like the item is passed from one to the other forward. That's not how people thought about it. They often weren't in communication and many people paradoxically in the whole history of liberalism weren't thinking of themselves as progressives Mm -hmm. In any meaningful sense, they often really thought of themselves as conservatives. Um, you know, the, the, you look at the levelers or the Whigs in the Glorious Revolution in England. I mean, these guys were thinking they were going back to ancient liberties, ancient mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon liberties. They didn't think that they were trying to create a new age at all. They were not like, thinking that way at all. And many of the, the, the ideas floating around, say, Charles I, were that he was a progressive monarch. That he yes, was trying yeah. to push it to a different age. So at the time, none of the ideas that we impose on it now would have made any sense to any of the people mm. engaged with it. But that doesn't mean the ideas weren't there and that you can't find them and trace some kind of causal impact. Mm -hmm. And that, although you say this, there was no kind of passing on the baton, there is a moment where you say, like, talking specifically about revolutions, that there are sort of three revolutions that kind of advance the levelers ideas and a kind of advance the um, mm. the liberal cause and this is one thing i found really interesting in the book was this kind of triangulation between uh england north america and france yeah yeah and um it put me in mind of something actually on the funnily enough on the address of um a rue de l'odion where sylvia beach opened the first shakespeare and company um there is actually a plaque commemorating thomas paine who you don't talk about in the book but who um, is obviously like a famous figure of liberalism. And one thing it says on, on this plaque, because he lived in this building, was, you know, Thomas Paine, English by birth, uh, American by adoption, French by decree. And I, I think <laughs> that sums up so much in a way about how the three countries operate. Mm -hmm. But also it seemed to sort of, um, yeah, to sort of underscore this kind of this kind of movement between, well, I mean, we've begun with Descartes and then we've mo already moved into England. And then, you know, we have, we, I guess the next step is to, to North America and the kind of the founding of the, um, the, yeah, the United States with under kind of liberal principles. Yeah. And I mean, the funny thing is lots of that happens in a kind of chaotic sort of way, really. I mean, it's only because William of Orange um, sort of comes on that you get the sort of weird geopolitical, um, Breakup, where you basically get England separated off from France into into opposing mm -hmm. camps, something that wasn't happening before. You know, before they were tightly sure. mingled. In fact, Britain, sorry, England was a kind of a dominion of French politics. You know, <laughs> they could boss around and bribe, out, you know, however they liked. Um, and that and that ultimately leads to the American War of Independence. Um, and looking at the American War of Independence, you can obviously, in a much more sort of vivid and immediate way, trace a line there to to the mm -hmm. French Revolution. Not least sure. because France bankrupts itself, essentially yeah. <laughs> helping the Americans 
do it. I watched for my sins. I have no idea why I did this. I watched uh, Mel Gibson's film, The Patriot, the other day. Right. Which wow. you should never do. You should never. I mean, no matter, even if the next lockdown goes on for five years, you must never watch this film. <laughs> and, and halfway through, um, they spend so much time abusing the French as, as part of the plot of the film. And you think, how dare you? If it wasn't for the French, you guys would still be worshipping the Queen. How dare you do this? No, no, that's an absolutely essential sort of staging pose. So in the way that those three revolutions, the glorious um, to the American, to the French Revolution work, it's partly through ideas, especially with the American and the French. Um, but it's also partly through this just odd mixture of kind of... Um, unforeseen consequences, basically, to military mm -hmm. actions, predominantly military actions, to pragmatic actions, to finances, to geopolitical strategy. But where it ends up with, when you, by the time you get to the end of the sort of, of the French Revolution, which essentially, I think, for secularists, you know, we should, I think the rights of man essentially should be the sort of BC, AD moment for secularists. Mm -hmm. Just like the world changes, that's a fundamental sure. moment, the yeah, world yeah. changes and the modern world is, is properly born. I mean, that really is, is the culmination of a process that I think starts with the levelers in the English Civil War about mm -hmm. 150 years earlier. And they said, I mean, you look at Lilburn, um, one of the leading levelers, probably the closest they had to a leader, an absolute pain in the ass, um, but, you know, a very beautiful writer. And he sort of said, you know, though we fail, our truths prosper. And mm -hmm. you see that play out over a century and a half, and it culminates in the rights of man. And one thing that you also see over that um, century and a half, and I guess this is maybe where the the French Revolution makes a certain break from what had come before in the um, in, in in England and in 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 the US, is the sort of the the question of essentially what constitutes a man or what you know what constitutes mm. a person with rights. Mm. So in, when you're talking about the levelers and um, you're sort of kind of the first failure if you like of liberalism was yes. sort of how they define people out of somebody of being somebody with rights so essentially it comes down to men with property um and then of course you have this probably the second and maybe most famous and most dramatic failure of liberalism in the founding of the united states when uh slavery was not um was not abolished slavery was written in um to the constitution you always, the levelers, I, I kind of, I'm more sympathetic towards the levelers than I am towards sort of the founding fathers in the US because it, they try for every man. I mean, obviously, they're never talking about women. I mean, that no one even mentions it. You know, it's beyond comprehension that any of this stuff could apply to women at that stage. They try to talk about every man. And basically, in a process of attempted negotiation, they end up whittling it down, you know. To, but But still, they were probably including about two thirds of the men in England at the time, mm -hmm. the level of one, you know, they were cutting people out, but they were still including the majority. I mean, it would have been vastly, vastly more democratic than anything that was operating anywhere in Europe or the world. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of the American Revolution, it's much more severe because, you know, you, because you have slavery and you have slavery entrenched in it. Now, in every case, this is the same idea. And it's an idea that we see now, that we still see in our politics. It's the community of the free. Mm -hmm. It's that here are the liberal ideals. We sign up to them, freedom of the individual, protection of rights, etc. But they only apply to these people over here. You know, mm -hmm. to these guys over here, they're women, you know, they're immigrants, they're, they're black, you know, anything like that. Any, any of the various reasons we found throughout history to try and denigrate and oppress people, we exclude them from the rights. And that process carries on, I mean, 
on a legal level in the West, probably until, you know, the, the 1960s, where you get the big sort of civil rights movements in various countries. But even now, I think that that is still present in the manner in which many right wing conservative figures talk or conceive of liberalism. You know, when, when you hear now, when, when you look in, you look in the US right now, right, and you will see Republican figures talk about freedom, you know, from the state and my right to, to bear arms and all of that, and then not talk about abortion, for instance, mm-hmm. as, as an aspect of individual freedom. That is because this sort of, there's this remaining idea of the community and the free in their heads, which is like, yeah, the rights apply to me, but they do mm-hmm. not apply to you. That's really interesting. I, w- I wonder, um, one thing I was thinking while, while reading those sections, obviously it began with Locke uh, and his kind of um, sort of conception of, um, of liberalism and you know, the, the, what, what he did in the two treatises, is the kind of, there does seem to be an almost sort of, at least at the beginning, but also quite persistent link between liberalism and the concept of property. Like mm-hmm. in some way, um, the two seem sort of, inseparable at least in at least in the at least in the early history and that seems to perhaps be a potential justification about why sort of um yeah it, it you know um uh someone who these rights apply to would be somebody with property because it's almost like that that it, by being in possession of property one has elevated oneself to a kind of a different status of i don't know of being in some way yeah exactly it's it, you know what it's there in the opening seconds of the politics of liberalism. There's this event called the Putney debate, sort of right in the heart of the English Civil War, where, you know, the levelers working with the army have basically sort of captured the king and they're at war against their own parliament and then mutinying against their officers. And they have this debate, this incredibly advanced political debate in the middle of the scenario. And the moment that these kind of rights are mentioned, Ireton, who's Cromwell's sort of son-in-law, stands up and says... Well, okay, fine. But you can't possibly mean that we give these rights to people without property, right? Because if we give it to people without property, they're going to take away all the property and then, then we're in there. And that, that debate, which is essentially a debate about, um, it, are these ideas to be committed to, to the extent that we will allow them to fundamentally shake up existing society? Mm-hmm. Or are they to be implemented without affecting the structure of society? That which I think is the origin of the laissez-faire versus radical liberalism uh, split of the right versus the left in liberalism is there right at the beginning and carries on throughout. When you get to Locke and Adam Smith, I don't think they they have necessarily grasped it. And, mm-hmm. and they certainly haven't headed off in a particular direction. So they're both really, they're the tree trunk, you know, and the, mm-hmm. in the future we, we get the branches coming off. But Locke especially... It's really unclear whether he's understood what he's talking about. He talks about your individual rights to keep your stuff, i.e. your property. And that's why liberalism exists. He also talks about the fact that we all become wealthier by securing private property. Mm-hmm. And then he starts, and then he sort of kind of accidentally goes, oh, but obviously we're going to have to fund the state. So if we fund the state, we're going to have to have taxation. And he could sort of get the <laughs> sense of tremor of like, well, hang on a minute. How do we, the taxation surely is an interference in property. And he doesn't really resolve it. Adam Smith goes further. I mean, Adam Smith, for all the sort of right-wing love that's given to him, all the way that sort of, you know, neoliberals or libertarians or whatever we're going to call them, praise him. Adam Smith has a really big role for the state. He suddenly says, Mm -hmm. oh, they're going to probably have to build canals and all these things where there's market failure. 
we're probably going to have to bring the state in. He sounds very much like a social democrat at that moment. And that's all bubbling away there, but without a real sense of, of how these different traditions are going to start going their separate ways. Yeah. I don't know. And coming to the, the French Revolution, I mean, um, this is going to sound perhaps a little bit ignorant about somebody who's been in, in this country for almost two decades now, but like <laughs> my it seemed to me, my understanding at least of it, is this is perhaps the first liberal revolution where there's there is that separation between the ideas of liberalism and the ideas of liberty and the the idea of property like that doesn't seem to to be inherent to the kind of the at least the initial values of the the french revolution as it as it took hold well it's odd i mean they they give property to spots in the rights of man i mean nobody nothing else gets two spots you know freedom of speech okay, spots. <laughs> it, it's it's give, it's collected in the bundle of rights you have at the beginning mm-hmm. but then also there's you know it's a it gets its own sort of subsection this is it's a sacred and inviolable right but then really when you see the french revolution sort of start to swing out of control and you see demands from the sans culottes from really from the crowds in paris for price controls mm-hmm. on bread but then on a, a number of other items Robespierre, who initially starts very, very critical of any kind of interference with property. You know, I mean, the French Revolution is basically a lawyer's revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, they're mostly quite firm on that. Suddenly he swings around and he puts and he really puts property. He says, he says well, fine, we, can, we don't need to be too sacred about the right to property. <laughs> he also didn't feel you had to be too sacred about any right, frankly, <laughs> including the right to life. So it's hardly surprising he gave up on that one. Um, and once that took place, I think afterwards... You get this real um, sort of, I think in the years that follow, you get this um, this view from many people, especially on the right of liberalism, that something fundamental was revealed there. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the fact that the property right fell away at the same time as the terror took place. There's mm-hmm. an intimate relationship to that. I don't think that's true. I obviously don't. I mean, the book doesn't argue that case. But it did a lot to strengthen the kind of, the moral commitment of laissez-faire liberals to thinking that mm-hmm. property rights were really truly fundamental when it came to the freedom of the individual. And in fact, the book argues almost the opposite case in a sense. Is that like the sort of the the sort of one of the things that lay behind the terror was this kind of shift in a sense from liberal values to this idea, this kind of Rousseauian idea of the general will, like which is um, and one thing I'll put a pin in, and I, I think we'll come back to later when we kind of get into contemporary politics, particularly nationalism and identity politics, because it seems to play into into that discussion too. But yeah, there seemed to be a kind of um, a moment of of transition. Maybe it is when sort of you do have these kind of movements of groups like the Sans Culottes kind of causing. Uh, sort of shake, shaking up sort of life in Paris and kind of and, and doing things en masse mm-hmm. that this kind of this idea of the general will a general will which then somebody you know with the kind of uh political energy of Robespierre can then kind of capitalize on to essentially make it sort of equivalent to one man's political will yeah you always and you see that process over and over and and I do think it starts with with Rousseau poor Rousseau who did write very very <laughs> elegantly and who I'm aware and have spent many days of my life talking about with people who are much more sympathetic. But it does start with him. The idea of the general will sounds very democratic. 
But it wasn't really democratic and really is quite hard to understand in any in any sense. It's essentially Rousseau's idea of it was that when you get people together, he was really thinking in sort of Swiss cantons, to, to be honest, mm-hmm. realistically, he was thinking in small societies. You get people together, get them to try and work out politics. They develop under the right conditions, this kind of elevated social consciousness, mm-hmm. um, which is a true self, a true social self. And the answers that they find to political decisions is are objectively true if mm. reached in that way. And then he then put this figure called the legislator, who sort of describes as a kind of man god, above it to try and influence and harness and mold, you know, the general will, predominantly through symbols, through sort of tradition, through marches, not really by rationality. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, you truly see it with Robespierre. You see it explicitly with Robespierre. I mean, Robespierre completely obsessed with Rousseau and, and really tried to emulate him. In fact, was very conscious about trying to become uh, the legislator and trying to assert virtue in society. Um, and of course, it's very tempting to any leader, right? Because what you're saying is, I mean, we, General Will was the historical name for it. What it really is now and has been throughout the 20th century as well is the will of the people. Mm-hmm. That's the idea, you know, that they are homogenous. They have a, a joint consciousness that operates out, irrespective of any of their individual interests and behaviors. If you... But all leaders love to say, oh, I'm the will of the people. Of course sure. I am. And that you don't need to, you know, express it in elections or individual rights now. It's just, I'll, I'll do it from now on. And so you see from Robespierre, you see the same thing with Hitler. You see the same thing with Stalin. And I would suggest you see the same thing with the right wing and left wing populists uh, in the modern mm-hmm. day. And so one person who kind of saw through this um, was uh, ben, uh, ben, uh, Benjamin Constant. Now, mm-hmm. I, I was just laughing because earlier when you were talking about Descartes, you said, you know, uh, uh, he was a bit of a, a bit of an asshole. I'm paraphrasing, but that was broadly <laughs> it. Um, and then, and then, you know, you said uh, the same thing about uh, Rousseau. I'm just wondering. Actually, okay, Rousseau was Swiss, so I'm not going to accuse you of having a pop at the French. But like, um, one thing we'll find about liberalism as it goes on as well, and not not entirely, but like this book is populated by not not just by assholes, but by maniacs. I mean, you you do actually refer to Constant as a maniac. Uh, you also say he was the first world's first truly modern liberal. But like, one thing actually you don't address in the book is this kind of confluence between <laughs> between sort of maniac and and liberalism. And like, and you know, we'll come on to talk about Locke in a minute. But like, there's also the kind of the upbringing that these people had as well is sort of really sort of off the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 on the subject of constant. There is something very important. He see he does have a very important kind of insight into what he thought lay behind the terror. <laughs> I did get increasingly concerned for what it's worth when writing this book. That I was like, oh, this this one's an asshole too. Is there something <laughs> I should conclude from from this? Fact? There are, you know, you got John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor. You got John Maynard Keynes. I think those three are probably the only people I really like the book or would want to have a drink with. I mean you definitely don't want to have a drink with Constant because he will take your money you know he will take everything from you I'd, 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 I'd add Orwell and Berlin to that. oh no I'd, quite I'd right quite right you, you know my book much better than I do you're quite right I would absolutely love uh, yeah I'm not going to turn down having a fight with Orwell that, that, that seems like a not very sensible conclusion to have come to Benjamin Constant was a maniac. He seldom met a woman he didn't try to sleep with, regardless of her marital status. 
He gambled himself into oblivion time and time again, despite enormous inherited wealth. He let down every friend he ever made. He had to escape from almost every major European city to avoid his creditors or angry husbands or heartbroken lovers. He condemned political enemies in the strongest possible terms and then allied himself with them when he thought it might be of benefit. He was a hysteric, an egomaniac, a liar and a cheat. He was also the world's first truly modern liberal. His accomplishments were legion. He sketched out a blueprint for modern liberalism from the ruins of the terror. He was one of the world's first cosmopolitans with a genuinely global lifestyle and sense of identity. He outlined a form of political theory which orbited around personal freedom. He articulated the idea that society was as much of a threat as the state. And most importantly of all, he introduced the notion of the individual as a fully established political unit. For 40 years, he said, I have fought for the same principle, liberty in all things, in religion, in philosophy, in literature, in industry, in politics. By liberty, I mean the triumph of the individual, as much over a government which seeks to rule by despotic methods as over the masses who seek to render the minority a slave of the majority. And Constant was, he was, he was a bastard. You know, he was. Um, and, you know, he would basically just, he would try to seduce any woman that, that he met. And he wasn't very good at it. He wasn't very good looking. <laughs> and so he would often end up, you know, in this incredibly, insanely flamboyant way, sort of carrying out a mock suicide or in, insisting on a duel, you know, with a father or something like this. And mm-hmm. um, so he was, he was a maniac um, and an inveterate gambler and very spoilt. Um. The thing is, he's the, the experience you get when you see him emerge is honestly like he's just modern. Mm-hmm. I mean, modern in a really true way, the way he talks about travel. I mean, he goes all over Europe. Um, he doesn't actually seem very interested in any of the countries he's in or the culture of the country or anything like that. He really is. <laughs> he's a genuinely rootless cosmopolitan. <laughs> he, is actually, he actually is that. Um, Liberal he, metropolitan elite. He's, he is. I mean, this guy is 100% metropolitan elite. He wouldn't have a leg to stand on against that. Um, he, he does something very important in liberalism. And he does many things that are tremendously important in liberalism. He's one of the most underrated of all the thinkers. Um, but one of the crucial things is the extent to which he thinks society is a threat. Mm-hmm. Until now, it's always the state. You know, it's religious authority sometimes, or predominantly it's the state. Um, but Constant lives an incredibly shambolic life. You know, he's, he's with a variety of women, but a lot of the time he's with Madame de Stael, um, where he's essentially a kept man, you know, and this mm-hmm. is deeply frowned on by, by others. Um, and his main thing is to see society as this kind of suffocating blanket, just encouraging conformity, just to try to make you uniform and homogenous and just like everyone else. And I make it sound like he's, he has the philosophy of a Rage Against the Machine song. <laughs> it's, it's not entirely distinct, but I think that's a very useful you know, instinct to have. Um, and so for him, it's the first time that liberalism's really starting to think of society as just as much of a threat as the mm-hmm. state. And that becomes a very key idea in, in liberal theory. And that originates with him. The, the use of the word individual in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's hard to find many instances before Constant comes along. He is, until Constant, it's all quite embryonic. It's like mm-hmm. the furnace of ideas, even the French Revolution. You know, when you get to constant, there, it's firm, it's fixed, it's articulate, it's sophisticated, it's modern. Mm. And, and, and I also get the impression that it's sort of, you know, his life, it wasn't 
uh, inconsequential to the philosophy. Um, I mean, there's there's a moment where you say sort of like he has this sort of sort of revelation that sort of if he himself did not know what was good for him, <laughs> mm. then, you know, that society didn't either. Like sort of like there's no if if even the person who knows him most intimately is unable to to say what he should do and what what would benefit him. How could this kind of amorphous, um, sort of corrupt, probably sort of system, know any better what to what mm. to do with him? And that kind of revelation, in a sense, can can almost only come from a sort of a dissolute life, in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. One of his friends says to him, "I'm going to paraphrase it. I don't think I'm going to get it quite right." But she says, "Um, the moment that you that you express a feeling, it is on the verge of disappearing." And that's basically his life. He he kind of, he just has these very strong yearnings and his romantic relationships, which is what he mostly concerns himself with. It's a yearning for sort of belonging and commitment, which as soon as he finds it, he therefore desperately needs the independence. And look, look mm-hmm. this is nothing, this is not like an extraordinary thought, right? Anyone in university would have had, you know, a friend that was expressing, you know, the same kind of thing. But what's extraordinary about it is that he presses it into politics mm-hmm. because it's that thought. What if I don't know, if I don't know, what the hell I actually want. <laughs> you know, who, who is anyone else to tell me that they have a good idea or worse to enforce their idea of what I should want? Hundreds of years later, Isaiah Berlin comes up with something that's actually oddly similar when he says, he, he talks about you know, the variety of values that are held in society, but are also held within each human breast. And that, and that these values do not coexist that actually they rub up against each other. So, you know, for him, you know, if, if you're um, a, a strong patriot whose country's at war, but your father's ill and you're someone that really, you know, loves family, he's like, there's no solution to this. He just asks you to see that this is a moral tragedy. You have to make a call. And that each life is composed of a series of moral tragedies. It therefore follows for society, Berlin that liberalism is crucial because there should be as few restrictions to our actions, as few mm-hmm. impositions to the, the fundamental role of choice making in a human life as as possible and that's ultimately that same idea which is an idea deep in liberalism which is speaks to the idea of doubt really mm-hmm. you know it's doubt in what is true when you come to Descartes for the levelers it was doubt in how should you worship God you know we don't know so we have to allow all these different ways to worship God in mm-hmm. order to find it you know when it came to our, our Arabogetica, it's always a bastard of a thing to say, Milton's sort of <laughs> defense of free speech, um, which I think he titled that way in order to prove the necessity of free speech. Um, <laughs> it, then you get to the sort of thing of, well, I can't come up with a proposition that I know is true unless it's tested by others. For Constant and for Isaiah Berlin, it's doubt about our internal life, mm-hmm. about what the good life is, about what it is to be free, to be happy, to have contentment. And on that basis, you then reach a very personal very intimate kind of liberalism that is quite different, actually, to the sort mm. of more political, more sort of man the barricades types of liberalism that have come before. It's just as an aside on um, Isaiah Berlin, because I'd never actually read him, and and that I, that very idea that you just expressed, this idea of kind of accepting that there are difficult choices and there are conflicts, and that there will be this sort of you know, there's no black and white answer. I think probably because of the sort of the tenor of political debate these days and particularly of online political debate, there was something just so immensely refreshing about hearing that thought being expressed. The sort of, it just seems so utterly anathema to, to how everything is conducted these days. And yet also in some way sort of so 
completely obvious as well. Yeah. Yeah, but it's despairing as well, right? I mean, I I think in my personal life, you know, in my personal politics, it took me decades to come to terms with that thought. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, his thought ultimately is there's no happy endings. You mm-hmm. know, there's no point where politics is going to get solved. You know, right. it's it's conflict is innate. You know, we have different values. We have different ideas. The role of liberalism then is to try and soften the edges, you know, to, mm-hmm. to make to make it as smooth as possible, for people to express those ideas, to live different kinds of life in society. But that's the best you can hope for. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't offer what communism or any, really almost any of the other philosophies do, which is it'll be all right if you just do this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then it's utopia, guys, you'll be fine. And of course, the problem with those philosophies is they're false. And whenever people think that they're trying to create utopia, they suddenly think, well, I can slaughter as many people as I need to right. because it's all worth it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, personally, honestly, when I, you know, when I was a teenager, I needed, and I first got into politics, I needed firm answers. I needed mm-hmm. promises of this stuff can be fixed. And it was well into my 20s and even my early 30s where I was able to just kind of to, to, to give up on that idea and to accept the, the, what I think is the reality of the world and the much kinder, gentler, more moderate politics that can flow from accepting that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I wish we had time to kind of talk about like, all of the different subjects, but one that I would definitely like to to, to focus on, like as I say, I don't think we'll have time to go into Hayek and Keynes and Orwell and Berlin, mm-hmm. but I would like to talk about um, John Stuart Mill or rather more specifically uh, Harriet Taylor, because this is, I mean, I studied on liberty at university and as I started reading this chapter, which you very pointedly title Harriet and John, mm-hmm. um, I had never heard of Harriet Taylor. There was, you know, the John Stuart Mill. I mean, in, in fairness, when we were studying university, we, we only studied the text. We never studied the life. Like I was equally surprised to find out that John Stuart Mill had this kind of radical upbringing, quite similar to Constant in a way, like a father who mm. was determined to, to shape the, the, the kind of the perfect political being in some way. But the fact that, in, that one of the uh, most important writers of the liberal tradition was in fact two of the most important writers Mm -hmm. of the liberal tradition. And the fact that uh, Harriet Taylor was crucial and in fact behind a lot of the ideas that fed into On Liberty and that sort of her and John Stuart Mill's uh, thought was kind of a combined endeavour. Could you just talk a little bit about how you came across this story and where sort of the moment when you you realised that sort of Harriet Taylor played m- a much more important role than any sort of history of politics has so far really credited her with. You see, all I all I knew of her, like you, was from the dedication to her at the front of On Liberty, right. which is probably I think the most beautiful dedication I've read in any book. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I, I read it, it actually made me cry. And then you get to the rest of On Liberty and you're like, oh, this is a very different writing style now. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a much more rigid pound. It's, it's not a sentence the length of a page, for example. I know, I know. It's, <laughs> it's worse with the autobiography. The autobiography is borderline unreadable. And there's one point I remember <laughs> looking at this paragraph that had already been going on for a couple of pages. And I was like, when does this paragraph end? And you flick and you flick and flick. And you're like, how is this possible, John? Come on. Um, uh, but you'd, And when you start reading, man, the first thing that gives you an indication you know what? Actually, the first piece of evidence is this. It's um, uh, Liz Rose, Elizabeth Rose, her friend, their friend, actually, 
1830. So this is really the year that they met at a mm. dinner party in, in, in London. Um, she reads an article in uh, a magazine, a political magazine. And at the time, political magazines didn't really have bylines. You know, so you didn't know who the author was. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she writes a letter to Harriet and she says, did you or Mill write it? And the crucial thing is, within a year, they are considered essentially by friends to be intellectually indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Now, the evidence, I mean, the, the evidence is, is really quite extensive. We have the notes. We know because they wrote about their writing process. You know, one of them writes in pencil, the other in pen to sign it. They're working through each sentence together. They describe themselves as we when thinking about the work. Most importantly, John Stuart Mill, who's portrayed later by those who want to deny her role and essentially erase her, um, is portrayed as this man. He's just hopelessly in love. He's lost Mm -hmm. his mind over this kind of liberal, femme fatale, ditzy seductress. Mm -hmm. And he will say whatever is nice about it. You look at him describing his work and he is fastidious about exactly what went into which. You know, when he says the system of logic, he's like, it owed nothing to her. It's completely right, by the way. But her only note <laughs> that we have when he sent it to her, for her comments was she just wrote back, so very, very dry. That was <laughs> the full extent <laughs> of her interest in his system of logic. Um, when it came to the book on political economy, which really made his name, she didn't do anything in the first draft. By the third, she was actually contributing quite a lot. She'd added a chapter on the status of the working classes. But for most of his really crucial economic work that I think establishes sort of social democracy, really, she didn't really contribute anything to that. When it came to the subjection of women, the emancipation of women on liberty, the key seminal text, he said, it comes from our joint fund of thought. They were Mm -hmm. extensive in describing exactly how they work together. We see from her early letters, you know, and from her early writings to herself, some of the key ideas in On Liberty, two decades before it's published, that we see a very early embryonic version of the harm principle, which is still kind of attached to utilitarianism, but you can see it starting to come unstuck and become something unique. We see the idea of the chief role of eccentricity in society as, an, as a rejection of conformity. You look at the evidence, you look at what they themselves wrote, it is demonstrably the case that, they, that that book, especially On Liberty and the other feminist texts, come from the joint fund of thought. And so it just becomes extraordinary to then see the way that society has completely ignored her and Mm -hmm. valorized him. Yeah, I mean, extraordinary and yet, you know, all (laughs) too ordinary in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course, they would have done that on uh, mm-hmm. uh, even, even with, you know, even with somebody writing about the emancipation of women, you know, that sort of the the, the sort of the, the irony isn't lost there. Um, on which subject I'll come back to you just in a moment. But one thing you do say also say about Mill and Taylor and specifically on liberty is that it's not really a manifesto at all, but a self-help book, um, an instruction manual to living a life of truth. Um, and one thing that did sort of throw me back a little bit to the sort of um, the the reflections I was having on on the title of your book, actually, How to Be a Liberal, which, as I said at the beginning, sort of struck me as an interesting title choice for the type of book that it was. And it suddenly made me wonder, is this book a kind of, not a self-help book in itself, but it's sort of a a book in a sense of sort of practicing what it preaches in uh, in the sort of the liberal tradition, in a way, that sort of you, you know, you present people with the history and a kind of a reasoned argument to hopefully encourage a change in that person's approach or in that person's life. No, thank you, man. Thank you. I really appreciate you asking me that because this is not the way that most of these conversations have gone. Most of the way the conversations (laughs) have gone are, you say how to be a liberal. 
but and I was expecting that at the end there'd be a ten point plan. And I was sort of like, <laughs> oh no, man, that's not the, that's not what we're going for here. The idea of really how to be a liberal is, you know, these are the values. The values are autonomy, questioning. It's not about what you think; it's about how you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and these and th- these are things that guide us in our structure. But it's based on the freedom of the individual, on people who would think for themselves. And that so. I think the answer to the question how to be a liberal is on, is in the last chapter, but it's not mm. ever going to be stone tablets of these are the propositions sure. to hold. Yeah, yeah. This is how you live the life. Um, so it's possibly deceptive. I don't know. I don't think so. I think I, I hope that that's a more satisfying answer for a well-lived <laughs> life than me putting a 10-point plan, which would be, you know, legalized drugs. Off we go. Um, their thing, I mean, I think that what they have to offer in On Liberty, specifically on the value of autonomy, is the great gift that liberalism offers its adherents, but also the greatest challenge, you know. And it's funny, but the people that come up to me to talk about that chapter, especially that bit of that chapter, are disproportionately likely to be women and disproportionately likely to come from conservative backgrounds. And so often Mm. religious backgrounds are non-religious, where you just feel the full pressure. Other times it's it's about like the pressure to to be a mum. You know, you're told so early on as women, it's just like, well, you're going to be a mum, right? Obviously, you're going to be a mum. And it takes really something, you know, to, to be a sort of 30-year-old or a 35-year-old to just go, well, actually, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, that is yeah. not a thing that I want. That is key to their way of looking at things, that developing autonomy in yourself, the strength and the space and the quietness to make your own decisions for yourself rather than what your family want, mm-hmm. what your society wants, or worse, what you think, you know, the higher classes in society want that of course you know the way that we have that question to ourselves is like is this normal is this what ordinary people do the whole thing is no kill that thought it doesn't matter what matters is that you do what you actually want for yourself not because you think that society demands it it's an almost impossible thing to do and probably anyone that fully accomplished it would be you know arguably a psychopath you know we all want to make our parents proud we all, of course you know you can't get away from that but just to have that as a guide to a life well lived, to, to what it is to be truly free, not free just by there not being political or legal restraints on your actions, but by being actually present in your life. Mm-hmm. I think that is is one of the great gifts that liberalism has to offer. And this really feeds into, I think, I think what probably is the final thing we'll have a chance to talk about really in depth. And I'm going to skip over, as I mentioned earlier, like the sort of essentially the 20th century, which is sort of, <laughs> you, know, you write you write about uh, the rise of communism, the rise of fascism, obviously Hayek and Keynes, Orwell and Berlin. And these are yeah, really, really fascinating uh, chapters. But I do want to make sure we have time to talk about the contemporary situation, because um, I found the, the, the chapter to, the chapter on uh, identity politics really, really fascinating um, for the simple fact that I don't think I'd ever come across a kind of an expression of, I guess, the sort of the discomfort I feel sometimes with the way in which the uh, the debate around identity um, is 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 conducted, is it handled, the terms on which uh, on which the arguments mm-hmm. are um, are founded. Um, but in order to uh, to get a kind of an understanding of where we of, of the role liberalism has to play in it you kind of have to point out where liberalism failed to get to this point. And one thing you write sort of very clearly, firstly, that sort of, you know, by in our time, liberalism was kind of no longer at the centre of political ideas. Um, And that maybe feeds into a bit of what I said in the introduction about how, like, 
what we understand by liberalism, depending on where you are or who you talk to, has become mm-hmm. so kind of dispersed. But you also write liberalism had a dirty secret. When it talked about the individual, it only ever seemed to be talking about heterosexual white men. And I mean, with the exception of um, Harriet Taylor, up until this point in this conversation, that's broadly who we have been talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of, so, you, so you have this idea that, in a sense, this sort of this failure of liberalism, in a way, allowed a certain type of identity politics to emerge, which perhaps, like, if liberalism had played a more active role, could have perhaps led to a a healthier debate today. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's the divorce, right? I mean, to me, I, the, the last great moment of liberal triumph is is that civil rights movement in the mm-hmm. 60s. I mean, you know, not just for race, but also for, for gender, really, of just assessing the rights of those who have been marginalized, who've been forgotten throughout liberal history in workplace discrimination rules and housing and voting. Um, and then after that, something fundamentally changes. Um, and it changes throughout the 70s and 80s. And now we see the effect of it today. Um, and that's really the liberalism and social justice. I'm using social justice movements as an umbrella term for it. Mm-hmm. Kind of got divorced. And they mm-hmm. got divorced because liberalism was asked the question of just like, well, why do you keep on? Why, why is it that all these years you just seem to be interested in, in what straight white men thought and not yeah. really in the rights and privileges of others? And they had a theory for that. The theory is called standpoint theory. It's that, you know, you're, you process reality by virtue of your social location. You know, that if you are a white middle-class guy, you're more likely to prioritize things like free speech, the right to vote, than you are workplace discrimination, racial discrimination, all these other boundaries on someone's freedom. And there's a limit to our imaginative capacity. Now, I think this is the thing, this is the crucial part, and I think this is the crucial part in assessing what's happening with identity politics right now, is that that argument is fundamentally sound, but that if you then take standpoint theory and rob it of liberalism, rob it of the priority of the individual, you start going to a really, really mucky place. You need some standpoint theory in order to have that humility to ask people the ways in which they are restricted in their freedom to improve liberalism. But the moment that you get rid of the individual, you are essentially saying that someone is defined by their social environment. Now, if that's Mm -hmm. the case, then there is no way of distinguishing between people who happen to be of the same race, who happen to be of the same class, who happen to be of the same gender. They're all exactly the same. Now, watch that play out in debates. You will constantly see people say, well, I'm speaking as a or on behalf of. Mm. Now, this, when you look at the data, is just uh, it's an argument that simply cannot be supported. You know, over and over again, one of the troubles that um, feminists have is that they, when you look at polling of women in a variety of countries, many of, the, many of the views that they hold are quite reactionary, quite right wing, quite conservative. Of course they are, because people are, you know, are capable of many different eccentricities. You find the same within ethnic minority groups. So the people that say, as a, I'm speaking on behalf of this group, in fact, end up doing, usually from the left, but not always, under identity politics, the right wing often do this, even amongst sort of ethnic minorities. From the left, doing that old Russo trick. The old mm-hmm. Russo trick where, you know, you come over, I represent this homogenous block of humanity who have this kind of elevated social consciousness. It was done by him, done by Robespierre, done by Hitler, done by Stalin, done by countless others over the years. Now... You increasingly see it in, you know, I'm not going to make those comparisons strongly. These are people who are doing it for much, much better intentions in a situation of injustice. But the same process is happening from often from activist campaigners um, on the left and often from those in academia of speaking on behalf of these homogenous units that seem to be completely distinct from other cultures 
and completely homogenous with people who are like them. Mm-hmm. This kind of idea of a politics of who you are rather than what you want. And so those ideas, I think, do go way back and are dangerous. It's a tragedy when that divorce happened between liberalism and social justice movements. That was a tragedy for social justice movements because I think it led to the brutal kind of stone-knocking political debate that we have right now. But it's also a tragedy for liberalism because it deprived it of seeing all this whole new terrain of freedom, of all these various restrictions that people had on their lives that it would have been able to understand if it had had the humility to understand that, yeah, there is some adaption by virtue of where you are in your social status. So I think if, if anything can change and improve the debates that we have right now, it's some kind of coming together of those traditions so that they can start speaking the same language again. Mm. And this is kind of, I guess, where the the book ends. I mean, you said earlier that, um, you know, there's there's not this kind of 10-point uh, plan in your, in your conclusion, but it's sort of, it is this kind of question of, okay, you know, you say liberal, liberalism is not dead, but it is in a battle for its life. Um, and yet we also find, um, I mean, I don't know if quite optimism is quite the right word, but we sort of, you know, it's, there is definitely a sense that you, you feel that liberalism can um, continue to contribute. Like it's not necessarily on a kind of sort of a death spiral. spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two things you you say that liberalism requires in order to 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 achieve that and maybe at first when you see these two words next to each other one might think oh maybe they're slightly contradictory are confidence and humility humility Mm -hmm. um could you just explain a little bit more about what how you see sort of liberalism being more confident but also being more humble could lead to its sort of reintegration and reinvigoration of the political debate yeah like the humility i think has to come from the fact that we have like made some pretty major boo-boos <laughs> so <laughs> you know there's for a start you allow laissez-faire to take over from the 70s onwards and mm-hmm. it gets you the financial crash and it gets you a completely chaotic in, um, economic system where people don't feel any protection um and every time it's experimented with People flock to anti-liberal movements. Every time laissez-faire is imposed, it alienates people from liberalism because it fundamentally doesn't work and it fundamentally doesn't protect people's rights, the things that we're supposed to be interested in. It also treats them as just these atomized floating units, as if the individual has no collection to the people around it, to the, to the families, to its communities, to its country. Um, and we messed up, I mean, I, as I've already expressed on failing sort of marginalized groups to take proper due consideration of the restrictions on freedom that they face. And it's by assessing those failures that we develop a liberalism that works, which is a Mm -hmm. radical kind of liberalism that is grounded in those old values, those values that have worked for us for 400 years that have made, that have essentially freed humankind from tyranny over and over again of the freedom of the individual, reason, moderation, the separation of powers, autonomy. It's grounded in that, but it's still open to the changes that we see around us and the mistakes that we have made. To me, it's only by virtue of having humility about your failures that you can really be confident at all because that's how you stabilize your setting. I've just come away from, I mean, I've been at the, so watching the Labour conference and, mm. and in Labour, you know, you've got this split with sort of old Corbyn supporters and the new sort of stumble. And in terms of, you know, the economics and the politics, the, the, the prospectus put forward by many of the Corbyn supporters is really not that different to any kind of radical liberal one. It's, you know, mixed economy, more generous state. It's fine. 
What's amazing is the political change, that once they lost their sort of political tribal leader, there was no introspection. There was no self-assessment. There was just this retreat into conspiracy, and it was the press that did it, and it was the liberals that did it, and the centrists, and the Blairites, and the Remainers, and blah, blah, blah. Um, Just this sort of growling hatred and victimhood. But there was no, because there was no introspection, there was no development of the politics. Now, one of the things, one of the things that I think liberals do not need to berate themselves about, which is good, because there's an awful lot of things they do, is that they do engage in introspection. You saw that after the Second World War, the greatest moment for liberalism, really from the end of the war through to to the sort of mid-late 70s, this bursting of liberalism with Keynesianism spreading across the world, with international institutions like the EU, the WTO, with global human rights law. What you saw was a response to nearly being pulled to the brink of extinction. And then that introspection, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong with economics? What did we do wrong with people's sense of identity and belonging that we couldn't speak to it? And fixing it up. And I think that's where liberalism can be now. And it's one of those political philosophies, arguably the only one, that has the capacity to do that because of that extensive capacity for introspection, for criticism, for assessment of your own failings, for humility and confidence, which it contains. Which I think is the perfect place for us to to leave it today. Um, How to be a liberal is just out in paperback. And of course, it's available in Shakespeare and Company. It's available from the Shakespeare and Company website uh, or your local neighborhood independent bookstore, wherever (laughs) that may be. Um, Ian Dunt, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I hugely appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr. Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Freiman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading and thanks again for listening. <laughs>